It has been a minute since I've been here, um, and I always enjoy being here, and it is a joy and an honor, and I love coming here. I love it so much so that I officiated probably the fanciest wedding I have ever been to last night in Atlanta, and my voice is hoarse because it was the coolest wedding band I have ever been a part of, and I was yelling and having a good time, and I said, we gotta go, we gotta drive back, we gotta go preach. So uh, I am not sick or dying of any kind of a thing or, or nature, but I am lost my voice from having too much fun. I think it was a wedding that Jesus would have had fun at last night, if you know what I mean. Uh, it was a good time. And so we're here, and I'm always honored to be here because, uh, as it was said, I understand that Chris does not take lightly who stands in this space, and Chris is someone that I love very dearly and who has been very near to me in my development as a human being and a father and a husband, and so I always uh, cherish and relish the opportunity to be with you, and the fact that I get asked back um, is some sort of compliment from him. I do have to confess, though, in seminary, we were told when you go to a visiting church and and you preach that you should dress and kind of uh, look like what they would expect to see up front. And I didn't come correct with my shoes of, of what you're used to. So Chris, my deepest apologies when you hear this recording. Just got dirty sneakers on. You would not approve. But I'm glad to be here and I will stop belaboring this point because we share a, an affinity and a love for one another that is great. And I will add this off the cuff as well, uh, just for fun. But uh, I think it's great that Psalm 8 was Mosaic's call to worship this morning. We too recite the creeds and two of the songs you guys did for worship were on our set list, uh, unbeknownst to one another. And so I love the mutuality that exists not only between our churches, but that there is this thing that exists not only in the city of Birmingham, but at the church uh, universal at large where we do share this great faith in Jesus Christ and we gather to worship together with one another. I'm going to read my sermon text for us this morning. It comes from Galatians. uh, It starts in chapter 3, verse 23, and then we're going to go all the way to uh, 4, verse 7. So hear these words from Paul to the people of Galatia. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. 
So, today, speaking of the universal church collectively, we begin what is known and has been known for uh, almost a millennia now as ordinary time. Now, I know you all are familiar with the lectionary, and many of you uh, know what the rhythms and the routines of it are, and I know that you reference it and practice it here, and then last week you were in Pentecost, and you were in Easter season in Lent, and you guys know these things. But for those of you that don't know, or maybe are not quite initiated to this quite yet, the lectionary is this gift of a calendar that sets a rhythm for the church, global and corporate, and it has done so for nearly a thousand years. And in today, for that century after century after century, they have marked today as what they call ordinary time. And this will begin the longest stretch of time and season in the entire calendar for the church as we worship and center ourselves. And I love this image because what this is saying in the calendar is it is saying that it is a recognition of the fact that the life that we live the life that we find ourselves kind of being given to or doing or participating in, whether a believer or not, the reality of it is if you've lived enough years is you know that most of it is spent in ordinary time. Most of your life is not lived in the peaks and the valleys. And most of us would say that if that is where you live, then you have what uh, therapists and, and counselors would call a regulating problem. I am someone that lives in all or nothing, and I have been told that I have a problem regulating and that I need to learn to live and kind of be settled and integrated in the middle ground. That's just internally going on here. We know this in a larger scale. We know this very well. If you're a parent in this room, you know this idea well. I, when I sit with young fathers and mothers that are on the cusp of becoming a parent, and any of you that have sat in these conversations know probably what I'm about to say, they're terrified of things like changing diapers and cleaning up spit up and vomit and not being able to sleep at night. And none of us like those things. Maybe someone might somewhere, I don't know. But for the most part, I don't know anyone that enjoys catching vomit in their hands at a dinner table uh, at a wedding as I watched someone do last night. Like, no one likes that, but you do it. And honestly, once you do it, even if you're like, no, man, parenting's not the greatest thing ever, but like, like, you just do it. And they're your kids, and you really don't think anything of it. The diapers, like, after that first one in the hospital, like you're just kind of, you just go with it. You, you've got it. The thing that no one can prepare you in parenting is that it's a day in, day out, that the second that that child is born, you are a parent and you are always a parent. Even if they are with someone else, even if they're with their grandparents, you are a parent and you are wondering and worrying and you're thinking about them. And some of us compartmentalize better than others, but that's always there. You're always aware of where they're at. Are they destroying something? Are they running through the flowers like it's a high five line at a wedding that costs more than you can imagine? I'll stop using those wedding analogies now. That was the last one. Maybe. Who knows? We'll see where we go. But you get it. It's it's that day in, day out. It's the grind of the thing. Another phrase for this in life that we might understand, it's an idea of what's death by paper cuts. It's ordinary. It's just the same thing kind of over and over and over again. And this is where we live most of our lives. This is where we're kind of settled in. It's not the peaks and the valleys, but it's in the plains. Eugene Peterson would call it a long obedience in the same direction is the call of a believer. And this is what ordinary time is getting us to. We know what this feeling is. And last week, you all talked about Pentecost. And I think this is the gift of the Spirit. 
truly. The ordinary time would come the first Sunday after Pentecost. And if you're in like a really, really liturgical church that really emphasizes the lectionary, they will call each and every Sunday, they will mark each Sunday of ordinary time by saying the first Sunday after Pentecost, the second Sunday after Pentecost, so on and so forth, all the way up to Advent. And I think that's an important thing to hold on to because this is what animates ordinary time. I have two children, if you haven't guessed by some of my uh, analogies already. And recently we showed them Mary Poppins. We're like, let's start showing them some of these like older classic movies. Mary Poppins is way too long for a five-year-old to sit through. I had no idea that it was two and a half hours. I did not remember that. But we, we trudged through and we made it. But there's this beautiful scene, and a lot about Mary Poppins has always reminded me a little bit of the Holy Spirit. But I love this scene where they're in the park and they, they're walking, and then they're asked what they're doing, and they say to them, like, oh, we're just out in the park. And they say, well, nothing, and it's an ordinary day in the park. They say, nothing is an ordinary day with Mary Poppins. And I'm reminded of the Holy Spirit, and the gift that is, is we are pushed into ordinary life. That nothing is ordinary, though we are in ordinary time, though we are in the plains, and though we understand that we are not in the peaks and the valleys at all times. There's nothing ordinary when your life is animated and captivated by the Holy Spirit and the gift that is pushing you into the life and gift of resurrection. And we understand and we know this to be true as we experience this. And what begins to happen and what we see at the heart of Galatians and what is being pushed throughout this letter and this story is that Paul is longing for the people of Galatia to be given this Holy Spirit life and to grab a hold of it and to not abandon it or look back. Because what he promises is that as you live into the Holy Spirit, you will live into this life that begins to produce a certain kind of fruit. And Galatians is where we get the fruit of the Spirit. This life of joy, this life of hope, this life and ability to be long-suffering and patient, this ability to be gentle and kind and loving. And it's all animated out of the gift of the Holy Spirit that is put into us. And so this is what Paul is getting at. He's trying to help us to understand this thing or this idea that there's been something given to us that though our life may seem ordinary, and he's going to use this analogy and kind of tease this out through the book of Galatians, that really what we are finding ourselves in, post-resurrection life where we all sit today, we are finding ourselves in a life that really is a lot like a new exodus. We've been given a promise, and yet we find ourselves oftentimes wondering and meandering and, and wondering to ourselves if maybe it would just be better if we just went back. If we just kind of found ourselves going back to where we were, where things were a little more comfortable. Yeah, we didn't have all the freedoms. Yeah, maybe it wasn't exactly what we wanted it to be, but at least it was kind of easy and we knew what we were going to do when we woke up and there was, there was this thing to it. There was, there was a familiarity to the old life and the people of Exodus people of the the Old Testament. And we are kind of in some ways invited into a new exodus and Jesus serves as our new Moses and a better Moses. And this is what Paul is like teasing out in Galatians. What he is saying is he's saying the Holy Spirit is given to you as a promise. A promise that there is a better thing to come and that you will get there. But this is the beauty and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we see this even in the exodus. This is what God does. He does not give you a promise and then just tell you you have to wait for it. He gives you a promise and he does this thing and he's doing it now among us where he actually takes what he said he would promise to you and he pulls it into your life where you find yourself. 
A fun theological phrase for this that I'm sure you've heard many of times that we talk about now here, post-resurrection, New Testament, is this already and not yet idea. But Paul is insisting that the Spirit has been given to you so you know that there is something to come. It is a promise of what there is to be, but it is also not just a promise that you wait for. It's a promise and a reality that you can start to experience now here in this space. And this is what the Holy Spirit is meant to be for all of us here. And we spent all of Easter season at Mosaic, Easter tide, as we call it. It, We spent these six Sundays after Resurrection Sunday going through the book of Galatians, reinforcing this idea of the promise and the gift of the Spirit, setting up for Pentecost, but knowing that what Paul is getting at is this, that your life post-resurrection and encounter of the risen Lord has to look completely and utterly different than it did previously to that. And what Paul is saying is that the temptation to the people of Galatia is to return back to their life before they were introduced to the resurrected Christ. And we sat in Galatia for six weeks pushing this idea that the resurrection has realities that change your life. Hear me on this. I cannot say this to you clear enough or loud enough. The resurrection of Jesus Christ radically changes your life here and now. And you cannot go back. And so this is what Paul is saying to them. And this is why we said in it. And I want to explore this a little bit more by going through what we see in Galatians 3 together this morning. I think it'll help us understand what Paul's saying and how this looks maybe practically and in our lives today. Before I do that, and I'll try to be brief here, because we did just do a whole series, so I've got a lot of information in my brain, and I'll try to give it to you concisely, coherently, if if you're lucky. What's going on in Galatia, quickly, is this idea that you see uh, uh, very fast is that Paul is very, uh, uh, he's intense about this. Maybe one would even say a little angry. I think it's probably the angriest letter you can kind of sense from Paul. If you go to the start of our chapter 3-1, if you have your Bibles open, you don't have to turn there, it's fine. But you see chapter 3 starts with, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I I think sometimes we want to yell that at people, right? Like we get that sense, this idea. That's a a hard critique. And so he's angry. Why is Paul angry? This is why Paul is not angry. Hear me on this. Paul is not angry because the people of Galatia have chosen to ignore some like set of moral or ethical values or codes. He is not angry with them because they don't pray enough or because they, they don't tithe or give enough. He is not angry with them because their life doesn't look perfectly like that everyone thinks that it should look, okay? It is not about moral values and ethics and codes. That is not why Paul is angry. Paul is not angry because they did something. In fact, what Paul is going to say repeatedly in Galatians and in his other writings is that oftentimes these things that we think that are like bad, really they're not, it's it's not that they're bad, it's just that maybe in that season and space in life it's not helpful for you. Paul is angry because he has a pastoral heart and he is writing to a group of people that he wasn't even supposed to know or meet, but the Lord uh, in his sovereignty and his goodness derailed Paul's intentions earlier on, and we can follow this in the book of Acts. He was sent out on mission and lots of things happened. Lots of trials and tribulations came across Paul's path and he ended up in South Galatia where he had no intention of being and instead of pouting and saying, well, forget this, I'm just gonna do what I wanna do and move on, 
on. He gave himself wholly to the people he found present there. And in so doing, he was persecuted. He literally bled and was bruised and beat up for these people. And while he was with them, they caught a glimpse of and a grasp of the life of the Spirit. And their lives were changed and transformed. And what Paul is upset with, not even that he was beat up and, and, and bruised and all of those things, what he is upset with is that he knows there is a life available to them that they refuse to continue to press into. They're going back and living a life that is capable and possible without the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the giving of his spirit to this group of people. And he's saying, why would you go back? Why would you think about going back to a way of living that you don't even need the resurrection? Once you know the resurrection is true and real, don't abandon it. Don't go back to living that way. Allow your life to be reshaped and reformed in a whole new kind of like orientation. Don't give up on it. Once you've understood the resurrection, once you've encountered the risen Lord, do not just go back and living in such a way that it means that you do not need that. And here's what I think is true for most of us, myself included. I'll throw both hands in the air on this. I think that we oftentimes find ourselves living a type of Christianity that is quite possibly lived without the necessitation of the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the indwelling gift of his spirit in us. This is the temptation to starting to put like demarcations on our Christianity. Why we start to like to make rules and regulations. We push into these things because it allows us to live a comfortable and controllable life in the spirit. It's not even, we we call it that, but that's not what it really is. We begin to try to live in such a way that we have control. And here's the problem with that. What we are overwhelmingly convinced of, or else you wouldn't be here in this space, or maybe you would, but I don't know why. If you're in this space and you're not overwhelmingly convinced of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that it is real and that it changes you, there's probably a lot of more fun or easier things for you to go be doing. I would have stayed at the the wedding last night. See, I told you it'd come back. I would have stayed there. I would have had fun. I would have went and got brunch in Atlanta. There's a lot of really great brunch spots in Atlanta. But I would feel empty and shallow knowing what I know and having encountered what I've encountered. And I would say to you in front of you all that this is what I want to give my life to. And I've tasted something in the death and the resurrection and the encounter of the risen Lord. And I cannot untaste it. And there are these moments in your life where you will begin to taste and see something. And there are certain things that you taste and that you see that you cannot untaste and unsee super materialistic and unnecessary, but the first thing that comes to my mind for me is the first time I began to taste coffee like it was meant to be. I began to experience something in coffee that I was like, wait a minute, this is not like anything else I've ever had. And then I learned that there's this whole other world that exists and in the life and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his risenness and his encounter on you does the same kind of thing. It allows you to taste something that you cannot untaste and you give your life to it because you know that no matter what, you want to pursue that and you can't go back to what was. And Paul is saying is, you had pour over coffee that was roasted correctly. Don't go back to Folgers. Why? If you're a Folgers person, I'm sorry if I offended you. You should go to pour over coffee. This is what he's getting at them at a spiritual level. 
And here's why they're doing this, and here's the overlap between the people of Galatia and us today. It is a scary, scary overlap. In Galatia, what is happening, especially amongst these Jewish people that are coming in, so I'll explain this, this will help first. Okay, so the people in Galatia are Gentiles, meaning that they are ethnically and culturally non-Jewish. This is important because this is a letter being written to a group of people in a specific space and a certain history and time, okay? And so we have to understand who these people are and what's going on and help us, it helps us understand this letter a little better because if we don't understand that clearly, we start to make some assumptions about Paul and Galatians that I think we've tried to make that don't actually help us live our life in the response to the resurrection. So this is a certain group of people, they are culturally and ethnically non-Jewish. They are Galatians. Paul was there. They get a, well, the Holy Spirit, it fills them. The church forms in southern Galatia. It's multiple cities that he's writing this letter to, and this is the way it works at this time. And so the Jewish Christians that were back up in Jerusalem and Israel, they, they start sending Jewish mission, Christian Jewish missionaries out. Because at this point in time, as Paul's writing, Christianity is still like a sect of Judaism, but it's a persecuted and, and uh, looked not highly upon by the Jewish people. So Jewish Christians, would send, they would send missionaries out to these places and they would begin to talk to them and try to help them understand what this life is like. And so Paul goes there, converts these people, and then there's a group that comes in and is starting to tell them and say, hey, listen, it's all good and well that you're Gentiles and the, and the gospel allows everybody it's open access, you're good, come on in. But you probably need to be circumcised. And they start to apply these rules and these regulations. And here's why I think they're doing this. Not because they're legalists and, and pharisaical, not because they're trying to hold on to something. I think they're doing this because when you have experienced something like this, you can relate. When your life begins to be transformed. And everything you thought you knew or understood about how something should play out and work, whether that is philosophical and existential or very practical, what our natural predisposed kind of response as human beings to do is to reach out and try to control and make sense of everything we possibly can. Another really practical example for me to help you understand what this means, when I get stressed, my wife calls it my stress cleaning, and I, it's not even cleaning, but everything has to be in a little perfect spot. Sunday mornings before Mosaic meets, all the chairs have to be on just the right angle when I'm in the space, and everyone knows it's because I'm aware of the fact that there's only so much I can control in my life, but that I can control, and when I start to get anxious, I need something I can control, and I like start just like I'm now, I'm like, oh, I just got to get that's got to be in the line. Oh, that's got to be, that can't be there. I got to move it out of the way. But we do this at a large level. And I think this is what is happening amongst these Jewish people is that they understand and they're aware of the fact that there is something going on where they're losing grips or reality with what they thought was to be true. And Jesus has actually taken their entire understanding and concept of who the Messiah is and, and what it means to see heaven on earth and the promised land and all these things. And he's ripped it apart and he's turned it upside down. And he said, here you go, have fun. And they're going, we got to make sense of this. Not only that, but they're a persecuted group of people and they're trying to protect themselves and they're going to a space where they're going, we need to, we need to be able to like mark who, who, who's in and who's out. Not, I don't think necessarily because they're totally missing the gospel. I think they are doing it because they're afraid and they're scared. 
Then there's political upheaval, where uh, so Rome has hit its height at this point in history and is starting to descend. We are just a less than a lifetime away at the writing of this letter for the fall of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will completely cease to exist as we know it until way, 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 way later, and it's not what we saw in the Bible. And so there's all of this cultural, and here's the thing, humanity has always experienced this, uncertainty, cultural upheaval, spiritual, emotional, political, we're acquainted with this. But what's happening at this point in history, especially for them in their spirituality, and I think politically, is a very acute type of uncertainty and upheaval. And I think the last few years, we have experienced a, a very acute type of anxiety that has existed culturally and kind of like, I would politically and nationally and now globally in a lot of ways. There's an anxiety that exists. And I think our predisposition, because here's the thing, Satan doesn't have a lot of tricks. He's got, he's got one or two bags of tricks or one or two tricks in his bag. They're really, really good and he doesn't need more because they work on us all the time. You can track pretty much everything back to Genesis 3 and, and root it all in there. In Genesis 3, what, what the sin is, is that the people of God that he had created reach out and try to start to define things on their own and decide what they think is good and right. Instead of trusting themselves to give themselves over to God and say, no, you know what is good and right, and I'll submit myself to that. My, my deepest, darkest desires and sins and frustrations, all of it, I'll submit it all to you and trust that you know what is good and what is evil, and I will give myself to it. Our tendency in moments of anxiety and frustration is to wring our hands and to white knuckle our way through Christianity by defining what we think is good and right. And then what we do even one step further is we then begin to place that expectation and those definitions of what is good and right on those around us. The problem with this is that that then makes Christianity something that is Christianity plus. Now you may have heard this term in Galatians before. This idea that, that Paul is insistent about that is the gospel plus nothing. This is basic kind of introductory faith in Jesus, Protestant theology. We want to say it is the gospel plus nothing. And I, it is not less than that for Paul in this sense. But I think when we miss this kind of cultural and ethnical thing that is going on, what we think about is, well, it's, uh, you know, I, if I miss a quiet time, I'm still saved. Yes, of course, absolutely. It is the gospel plus nothing. But what may be a better way of thinking about this of what's happening in Galatians and what Paul is con- con- convicting them on or pushing against them in Galatians 3 is that it is nothing plus Christianity. Because what our tendency is and what we are prone to do is to start to put things in front of the term Christian. That we are American first or in this sense they're, what they're trying to say is that you kind of have to be Jewish first then Christian. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You are Christian first and foremost, above all else. That is your primary identity and where you center yourself around culturally. He's going to go on to say later that it's okay to bring those other things with you. You still operate in them, but you are a Christian first. And what this allows us to then begin to do is to not try to associate ourselves with a certain kind of cultural or ethnical way of living and make that what is good and right above all else. We submit ourselves primarily first to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we see how our culture and our ethnicity and our gender and all of these things operate and function under the call of Christ. We submit ourselves to the truth of Jesus as the truth of the Spirit lives and reigns in us. And we define ourselves by that. And what he wants them to do is to do this, but they're not. And he's asking them why. 
Why would you go back to living in such a way? Because when you do that, then you miss the gift of what the church is meant to be when the spirit dwells within you. You miss the gift and the fact that you are supposed to be a group of people that allow a wanting, needing, and waiting world to be convicted and changed. But if you live a life that does not require the death, resurrection, and animation of the spirit in you, then you cannot be the gift to the world that you need to be. You cannot be the missional people that Jesus intended you to be because you cannot convict or change. And so the reality of it is, is the world really likes for us to live a Christianity that doesn't require the cross and the resurrection and the spirit. Most of us know this. We're all good with kind of a mental assess, assessment of beliefs or ascent of beliefs. Even us, I think sometimes we fa- start to fall into this because here's the thing. If I just make it about a mental ascent of beliefs and kind of it doesn't actually change the way I live, that's really easy for me. Because I get to start to define that. I get to start to say, well, this is what I think is good and right. And, and then it's, it, I, I'm never challenged. I'm never convicted. I can kind of walk my way through life and just let it be. And Paul's saying, absolutely not. Do not waste the resurrection of Jesus. Do not waste the gift of the spirit in such a way that you would go back to living the, the way that you can live without it. You've experienced it. You've tasted it. You've seen it. And so what he's saying in chapter three as part of this argument is he's saying that this has to be true of you, this ethnic, this cultural thing. There is not two camps. There is one. There's one family of Abraham. And he uses the language of seed. And what he's saying by this is I think when we think family of Abraham in our modern mind, we see the family tree and kind of the way it branches out. This language of seed that Paul is using is saying there's a direct lineage. There is a direct line it is step down. Think of the way you read in math, like the start of Matthew, and it's just naming parents. And it's like this step, 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 step. It's a direct line. And he's saying, you all are in direct line with that. And that matters because that means you're in direct line of Jesus. And he's going to jump to the end and he's going to start talking about inheritance. And right at the end of the inheritance, he's going to say, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. And he's going to say, sons. If you read the modern NIV translation, they'll actually change a lot of this in Galatians. We said sons a lot through the ESV. The NIV is going to say children because it wants to be inclusive. Let men and women know it's not about being a man. It has nothing to do with your gender as a male. It, it, this end, this inheritance is a Jewish understanding that the son was the one that received the her- inheritance. So whether you are male or female in this room, what matters is that you in your faith in Jesus receive the inheritance that is promised to him because you are in direct line with this and it is based off of his faithfulness. And so in 23, I know I'm kind of all over the place. In 23, we go back to that and talk about it for a second. What he's saying here is that there's this faithfulness and all through Galatians, he's scrunching this idea of faithfulness together. And he's saying there's this faithfulness that you can believe in and participate in. And he's got this tension between is it our faithfulness or the faithfulness of Jesus? And my favorite answer to that is yes. He's saying that before there was this faithfulness that came, we lived one way. And now, because of the faithfulness of Jesus and his gift to us and his people, we then respond in his faith back to him and we live in this life. Not as one that needs to be babysat. If you read verse 24, patagotagos, Greek word, say it real fast, nobody will question you. 
Oftentimes, this would get translated as tutor, teacher, all these different things, but a a literal translation is babysitter. And in this Greco-Roman world, the task was for this person to literally take a usually preteen, teenage boy from the house to school and back in wealthy families. And so what Paul is saying is that this was the law. The law was meant to take us to something. And now, in light of the faithfulness of Jesus and the people of God's response to it, we have graduated beyond that. He's not demeaning it or belittling it. He is not uh, anti-Semitic here. He is saying in this that that it had its role to play and it got us to where we needed to go and now it's time to graduate. And it's time to graduate into a life full of the spirit that was promised to you. Because no longer do you have to live into a certain cultural or ethnic way. No longer do you have to live by certain uh, gender norms in, in that sense that make you a perfect Christian. What you get is this wild and free life that the Holy Spirit offers you. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. As you encounter the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you know it to be true deep in your bones, and you are filled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that no longer are you under the guide of a babysitter. The Spirit longs and desires to take you on adventures. Babysitters don't take you on adventures. Nature guides take you on adventures, at least ones that will require some risk and excitement. The father and the mother are the ones that bestow freedom upon you, not babysitters. And what Paul is saying is because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have been given wild and revelatory freedom. And this is the life that we've been invited into. This is the life that we know that is to be true. And so instead of trying to go back and begin to put our own truth and our own understanding and our own ideas onto things, we go back to live this life of full and abundant joy, love, and excitement. We go back again and again, not to the way that things were, but to the truth of the reality of the resurrection and the promise of the spirit that we know we have, and we put our eyes to the inheritance that has been given to us why we say the creeds every Sunday in our churches, to remind us that even when it doesn't feel so, we know it to be true. We know that this is the case. We know that this is what we can stand firm in. And Paul is pleading with the Galatians, and through Paul, I plead with you as we exit and we come out of Easter and Pentecost and go into the summer and Eastertide and all these things, do not go back but give your life over to the wholeness and the fullness of the life of the Spirit. And so hear me, BCC. We must contend with this. We must wrestle with and embrace a life that is necessitated on and by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that all will not always be easy or convenient or what you would want to do, but your life is one that will take the shape and the form of the cross. And that then in turn allows you to actually be the gift that you need to be both individually and collectively. I am convinced that as I look and see your faces in each and every one of you, that the Lord longs and intends for you to take a certain shape and form in this world around you in such a way that you can live and be the gift to the world that Christ was and that he intends for you to be. And as those parts come together collectively, you get to be an even larger gift. 
And you become more than the sum of your parts as you live into a wanting and waiting world. And in this day and age, the world longs and needs for a beautiful life because I don't think we have a great narrative that offers that to us. And in an anxious world, what you are given is the possibility and the gift of being a non-anxious presence in an anxious and wanting world as you live in and step into the gift of the Holy Spirit. So church, allow the faithfulness of Jesus to overwhelm you and allow your life to reflect the beauty and the grandeur that is found in it and step into it and let it overwhelm you and propel you into all you have. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your gifts and your goodness, your mercy and your grace and we ask Holy Spirit that you would come and help us to feel this, to to be overwhelmed and overcome by it, God. We ask and pray, Lord, that you would, um, in this space and in this moment, give us the beauty, uh, the vision of the beauty and the life of joy that you intend for us, and let us know and feel and experience the power and the hope of the resurrection, God. Let us find space in these moments to... uh, step back from what we would long or desire. God, let us find space to step back from and to open up our hands from what we would want to take out and define as good and right and instead submit ourselves in these moments to living a a life that is shaped and formed by the cross of Jesus Christ and a life that is animated by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us and the, the gift you have given us in Jesus. And we ask and pray the Holy Spirit that you would come and meet us here today. Amen.